Sometimes people come to my office because they're thinking of chucking their faith. Oftentimes, though not always, it's a guy in his 20s, and he'll start out by saying something like, you know, I've just been really struggling with doubts. There's, there's so many things that I just don't understand, and I'm not sure I really believe anymore. And so, for me, this is a big deal. But it's not just a big deal for me, it's a big deal for them. The reason that they're in my office is because part of them is like, I'm just going to chuck it all. But another part of them is saying, wait, 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 what are you thinking? And I can tell emotionally, it's as if they, they're standing right on the edge of this cliff and they're thinking, am I really going to jump? And so I say, well, tell me, you know, what's led you to this point? And maybe you'll resonate with some of these reasons. Usually the, they start with things like, you know, well, I grew up in a kind of Christianity that was very intellectually narrow. You know, maybe they were 13 or 14, they were in junior high Sunday school, and they asked a really hard question, and the adult teacher there got kind of a little out of their safety zone and kind of shut them down. And they were like, oh, I guess Christianity is not a place where you can ask the hard question. Or maybe it was, I, I grew up in a Christianity that was very artistically narrow. There was no real room for, for art or theater or, or beauty or kind of these robust cultural expressions. Or maybe it was, it, I find Christianity too politically narrow, something like that. And yet all of these are honestly still exterior reasons because as they will often attest, they've, they've found their way to res in part because they generally don't experience that here. No, what the core reason that they're thinking about chucking their faith is, is that it's, although they can't always say this, they've had an experientially narrow version of Christianity. So they'll start talking about the doctrines of Christianity. They'll say, well, I just don't know that I believe this, or I don't know how this, this goes with this. Or, or they'll talk about the kind of the moral components of Christianity. They'll say, I, I, don't, I just don't know if I can really live up to that kind of behavior code. But what my heart just breaks for them, and I just want to help them with, and, and if they'll let me, I do help them with, is that the, you're missing so much. <laughs> oh, you know, the very pieces of Christianity that you're not even talking about yet are the core pieces. The, the, the piece that you're leaving out, the, the, what you're not even mentioning, is really the heart of Christianity. It's what makes Christianity good news. It's, it's, it's something so different. And, and, and the picture I have for them is like, oh, friend, it's like you're sitting on North Avenue Beach at Lake Michigan, and you're 100 steps from the water. And every drop of your drinking water back in Wheaton comes right out of that lake. And yet there you are, and you're sitting here thinking, boy, I'm really thirsty. I wonder if I could get a drink somewhere around here. And it's all right there. Now, where are you this morning? I'm guessing in a group this size, some of you actually are right there where you're thinking, I don't know if I'm going to continue with this Christian thing. Do you know there's so much more? Some of you, you're here and you're not a believer, but you're, you're interested, you're exploring, you're really open, but part of what's been holding you back are those very things that I was just talking about. Do you know there's more for you? But I would guess 
that many of you here, you've been a Christian for a while, you're, you're not necessarily on the verge of giving that up, but you are settling for a level of Christianity that is still missing so much. You're missing something that is central to the mission and nature of Jesus Christ. It's what he came to do, and it's what it makes his message so good. And I just want to make sure that every one of us is so clear about that that none of us would leave here this morning and not be clear on that and opening ourselves fully to that. Let's look at it together. If you would turn to Mark chapter 1, verse 1. This is the very beginning of the story of Jesus Christ. Chapter 1, verse 1. And Mark writes, this is the good news. He can't even get five words into the story of Jesus Christ and not use the phrase good news, which tells us something, doesn't it? It says that if what we're experiencing of Christianity, if our experience of Jesus Christ is not good news, then could it be, and I say this lovingly, without any sense of judgment or chastisement, could it be that we haven't really gotten the whole story yet, that maybe there's a huge and central element that we're missing? So, I, uh, and the way Mark explains what's so good about Jesus is he compares Jesus to the person who came to prepare people for Jesus. And let's look at that in verse 2. The story of Jesus began just as the prophet Isaiah had written, Look, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you, and he will prepare your way. He is a voice shouting in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord's coming. Clear the road for him. This messenger was John the Baptist. Now, John has a great mission. 700 years before he was even born, God inspired the greatest of the Hebrew prophets, Isaiah, to say there's going to be someone who's going to rise up and be a messenger who will prepare people for the coming of the Son of God. That's John's mission. That's heady, isn't it, to think that your life work was on the heart of God to such an extent that he prophesied 700 years before you came along that this work was to be done by you. Now, I love what I happen to do, but I do not think that some mystic in the 1300s said, behold, an overly skinny man will arise who talks too much. You know? <laughs> but John actually had that divine mission. You talk about a great mission. It was central to the work and the purpose and the plan of God. Now, John is called the Baptist, not because he was Southern Baptist, but because of this. Verse 4, he was in the wilderness and preached that people should be baptized to show that they had repented of their sins and turned to God to be forgiven. And not only does John have this great mission, but look at the great impact he has. Verse 5, all of Judea, including all the people of Jerusalem, went out to see and hear John. Jerusalem for them was the financial capital. It was like for us, New York or Wall Street. It was also for them the political capital. It was for the equivalent of D.C. 
And it was also for them their sort of center of culture, like L.A. or maybe Silicon Valley now. And it was all those things rolled into one. So in the capital, you have the most sophisticated people, the most educated people, the most culturally kind of with it people. And yet these people leave the capital and go out into the boonies, way out beyond where their cell signal stops working, to listen to a guy who is like rustic and totally off the grid culturally speaking. And once out there, they listen to him, and not only do they do that, but they're willing to do some very difficult things publicly, especially for people of that standing. They confess their sins in a public forum, and then they are willing to be dunked under the Jordan River water and come up soaking wet, indicating, I need a complete change in my life. Now that is amazing. That is a great impact for John. And you go, why could John have that kind of great impact? And I think we get a clue to it in verse 6. His clothes were woven from coarse camel hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist. For food, he ate locusts and wild honey. John's got rough clothes and rough food, and what it's showing is he is so sold out to God. John has this great holiness. He's like... I don't care about clothes. I've never even been to Kohl's. He's like, I don't care about food. I don't, it doesn't even matter to me because what fuels me is my passion to do the will of God. He's got this burning holiness. And when you meet John, it's almost tangible. And you go, you have an authority greater than my own. You have an authority to baptize me. I need a life change. So John's a person of such great mission and great impact and great holiness that Jesus actually said once, of every person who's ever been born, John's the greatest. But here's what John says about himself, verse 7. Someone's coming soon who's greater than I am. And not just like a click or two greater, so much greater that I'm not even worthy to stoop down like a slave and untie the straps of his sandals. He's so much greater than I am that I'm not even worthy to park his car. Now, we live in a celebrity culture, so we have lots of cultural ways of of showing that someone is great and someone is it. Like, for example, when there's a screening, the celebrity arrives not driving some rusted beater. No, they arrive in this sleek limo that glides up to the curb. And they're not driving like you or I do. No, they're riding. And when they step out, they're not stepping out onto a sidewalk like you or I step out onto. They're stepping out onto red carpeting, soft, under the foot. And where are they in comparison to the red plush cords that cordon off the little walkway there? They're inside the cord. You and I, we're on the outside of the cord. And who's, who's the center of all the flash cameras that are going off. Flash, 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 flash. Not us, them. See, we have all these ways of saying, they're it. And John spends his entire life going, I'm not it. Jesus is it. All I did was just roll out the carpet. Now, what is it that, that would cause John, not out of any false humility, but just a statement of truth to say, as great as I am, There's someone so much greater. The difference is what they baptize with. 
What they baptize with is the difference. Let's look at verse 8. John says, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. See, baptizing in water is good. That's good. But it's parking valet level compared to the Holy Spirit. Yeah, you can have muddy Jordan River water, kind of warm and a little bit dirty, poured on the outside of your skin. Or you can have rising up within you this cool, clear spring water of the living presence and power of God. You can have the immediate presence and power of God inside your life. That's incredible. Nobody else can bring that. Nobody else can touch that. What makes Jesus so great is that he has what we most need. It's not good advice. It's good news. You can have God's life, power, joy, and energy resident within you. That's what so many people miss about Christianity. People who are considering it, people who are considering leaving it, and people who are still in it. What happens, I think, is our hearts are so sluggish that we, honestly, we read something like this, we go, um, baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And we go, okay, but how good would that really be? I've asked that question. Maybe you have too. So let me try to explain it this way. Why don't we walk through a typical day that a Christian might have, and maybe you'll relate to some of this, and let's take a few different events that happen in that day and look at them both with the Holy Spirit and without the Holy Spirit, okay? All right, the first one is you show up at work tomorrow morning at 8.30 and you walk in and you say, hey, good morning, Fred. And Fred kind of grunts and looks down and doesn't even greet you. He doesn't even say good morning because Fred is the coworker who is so annoying. And you, you've got to work with Fred because you need him for this project. But the truth of it is, whenever you have to work with Fred, it takes twice as long as it really needs to or should. And that's because Fred is twice as emotionally involved and involving as anyone else in your office. And every time you're in a meeting with Fred, you want to type on your laptop, careerbuilder.com, because you're thinking, either he needs a new job or I do. I can't take this. Okay, that's your situation. Now... Let's look at how, how you would respond to that situation without the Holy Spirit. Okay, well, the first thing you're going to do is you're going to strategize. You're going to go, how do I do an end run on Fred? How do I make it so that I don't even have to interact with Fred? And depending on where he is in the organization and where you are, you think, how could I kind of politically neutralize Fred so that I never, ever have to work with him again? And then you go to lunch that day and you gripe about Fred to your coworkers. Like, can you believe what Fred did again? And it's very easy to do that because they all don't like Fred either. Okay, that's without the Holy Spirit. Now let's take that same situation with the Holy Spirit. Fred grunts, looks down, and doesn't say really anything to you after you wish him good morning. And then what happens is what Romans 5 says, the Holy Spirit sheds abroad love in your heart. What does that mean? It means God gives you love through the Holy Spirit that you don't have and you weren't going to have and you had no other way to access. And suddenly you look at him, Fred, in a different way and you go, you know what? I'm guessing Fred had a rough life. I'm guessing the fact that he's actually here today and has achieved this much to get into this position 
is because he's a real survivor. I'd probably be astonished at what Fred has overcome to reach this place. And, and, and all of a sudden, this compassion from the Holy Spirit starts to fill you, and you go, man, how rough would it be to be the guy that everybody in the office doesn't like? That'd be horrible. And all of a sudden, out of the Holy Spirit's motion inside your soul, you look at Fred with a new charity and a new respect, and you treat him more like a colleague and a coworker rather than as a nuisance and a bother. And Fred, experiencing that, and it's so rare that he gets that in his life, actually softens a little, and the meeting goes better than you think. Now, you still don't want him on your team for the next project, but a minor miracle has occurred through the power of the Holy Spirit living inside you. Okay, that was 8.30. Now let's go to 10.30. Cell phone rings, you pick it up, and it's your spouse or your roommate saying this, hey, don't forget, you've got to leave right on time and on your way home, go through the store and pick up this and this and this. And there's something about the way they ask that irks you. And you hang up kind of in a huff because you're like, we talked about that three times last night. You really don't have to remind me. Okay. Now, without the Holy Spirit, you start to brood on that. And you think, how insensitive could you be? I'm in the midst of this really intense day at work, and you call me to say that? And you think, this is just so emblematic of everything that's wrong with this relationship. And the cracks in your relationship start to widen. And there grows a, an increasing distance between you and a growing coldness in your relationship. That's without the Holy Spirit. Now, with the Holy Spirit, you hang up the phone, and you're like, oh. And the Holy Spirit comes and ministers something that the Bible calls conviction. Now, what conviction is, is the Holy Spirit lovingly tells you the truth about yourself. And the Holy Spirit whispers to your spirit and says, you know, this really started yesterday when you were kind of cranky and withdrawn. You go, oh, really? There's two sides to this? And I can't do anything about their side, but I can do something about my side? Oh, I don't want to do that. Okay, okay, okay. And you pick up the phone and you say, you know, I'm sorry. I, I was... I was really short with you yesterday, and I know that that kind of got this whole thing going, and would you please forgive me? That is radical. That is countercultural. I have no idea how you do that apart from the Holy Spirit. I can't. But with the Holy Spirit, you can. And suddenly the cracks that have been in the relationship start to close up. And, and the coldness that's been there starts to thaw, and the distance starts to get closer again. Thanks be to God. All right, last one. You're at home that evening, 9.30, and you're alone in the house. And as you're there alone, you start to reflect on things, and you are reflecting like this. You go, you know, I sacrifice so much for other people. I give out so much, and I get so little in return. Man, I deserve better than that. And, and this growing dissatisfaction starts to build within you. Now, Without the Holy Spirit, the result is predictable, really. Either that night or that week, 
you are going to drink too much or eat too much or buy too much or access content you know you shouldn't because you're going to find some self-pitying way to try to medicate the dissatisfaction in your soul. And of course, it's not going to work. Even you know that in your better moments. And all it's going to do is actually make it worse because now you feel shame piled on top of that. That's your option without the Holy Spirit. Now, with the Holy Spirit, and this will be maybe a little hard to understand unless you've experienced it, but Jesus said that the Holy Spirit is like this, this spring water, like this river of living water, life-giving water inside your soul that you can drink from and get your thirst satisfied. So you start to feel this building dissatisfaction in your soul about how much you're giving out and how little you're getting in return. And maybe all of that is exactly right. But you turn to God in your dissatisfaction and you go, oh God, I'm so thirsty for you. I, don't, I cannot satisfy this thirst in my soul right now. Would you satisfy it? And, and you start to drink in hope from the Holy Spirit. And the Lord starts to whisper to you, you know... I know your sacrifices. Not one has been made that I have not seen and known. There's a purpose for your life. There's a story that's being written and it's not over. This is actually part of your finest hour. And all of a sudden your soul begins to fill up with satisfaction and hope. And there's this cleanness and rightness as your soul is right before God. And you're going, that is so so beautiful, so amazing. I don't want to do anything to jeopardize that. All oh, friends, do you see the difference maker it is to have the immediate power and presence of God inside your life on a daily basis? That's what makes Christianity good news. That's what makes it worth staying for. That's what makes it worth living for. That's what we all desperately need. Why would we not immediately throw ourselves on our face and beg God, God, would you give me more of your Holy Spirit? Lord Jesus Christ, baptize me, saturate me, immerse me, flood me until there's no poor left, untouched by your Holy Spirit in me. Now, some of you, I want to honestly talk about reasons why you might not be ready to pray that prayer right there. For some of you, I know that maybe you've had bad experiences based on bad theology when the Holy Spirit got invoked. Okay? So maybe you went to a church or you were in a prayer group where when the Holy Spirit came up, people kind of hyperventilated. And maybe they used Holy Spirit language to manipulate you. And worst of all, maybe they made it seem like you were less than a Christian and you didn't even really have the Holy Spirit unless you'd had some sort of experience that was important to them. Well, I am really sorry about that because that's wrong. Every person who comes to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith through the waters of baptism receives the gift of the Holy Spirit. You can't even say Jesus is Lord without the Holy Spirit. But here's what I want to say to you this morning. The same apostles who got filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts 2, two chapters later, are filled again in Acts 4. So Paul writes in Ephesians 5, verse 18, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be continually filled. And did you know that is a command that you and I can act on? No, we can't get ourselves the Holy Spirit. We can come to Jesus who gives it to us, but we can come like a toddler with a juice glass going, more, more, I don't have enough, more. All right, the second reason maybe you're not quite ready to pray a prayer that dramatic that Jesus would baptize you in his Holy Spirit 
is that just by temperament, you're reserved. I'm kind of reserved, actually. I spent a lot of my upbringing in New England, which is a little more kind of buttoned down than maybe some of the other parts of our country. And, and the thought of having a God-level power in your life acting in certain ways kind of freaks you out. Well, here's what I want to say. Paul teaches very clearly that the spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet. What is he saying by that? He's saying the Holy Spirit will never ask you to say something, do something, that, and you have to do it unless you authorize to do it. God is such a perfect gentleman, he will never override your will. So if the Holy Spirit moves you to prophesy, you can start prophesying or you can stop. If he moves you to speak in tongues, you can start speaking in tongues and you can stop speaking in tongues because he honors your will and he'll never override it. That's how loving he is. So you don't need to fear that. Now last though, I think one of the biggest challenges that we have as a people living here in the suburbs right here is, is around the Holy Spirit is this. We get into a problem and actually we're, we're highly educated people. We're highly competent people. By most of cultural standards, we're kind of the winners. And so we think, we get in a jam and we go, you know what, I can think my way out of this. I'm sure I've got a plan I can figure out to get out of this. I can fund my way out of this. I can borrow my way out of this. Uh, maybe I have to fight my way out of this, but I'll get out of this. And we don't think, I am so desperate. My life can't even begin to function in any meaningful way apart from the immediate presence and power of the Holy Spirit, what kind of arrogance would come over me that I think I've got this? Don't worry, God. I don't really need what you have to offer. I've got it under control. Oh, friends, I feel like some of us settle for the functional equivalent of the baptism of John when it comes to our Christianity. We understand repentance. We understand confessing of sins. But do we understand what it's like to be plunged down into the life, power, joy, and majesty of the living God inside you? That can be a reality. It should be for us all. Oh, that we would just begin to pray and cry out to God with all our hearts, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, baptize me in your Holy Spirit. Plunge me all the way down in. Whatever's been holding me back, whatever blocks I have, I'm going to bring them to you right now and I'm going to confess them because I need what you have to offer. What makes you great, Jesus, is that what you have is what I most need. Now, let's have some time. I, the application for this is not to go sit and think about this. The application for this is to open ourselves, right, and pray to Jesus. So let's do that. If the musician is Steve, I guess... <laughs> would just lead us in some music. I want to lead us in some prayer. So let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, oh, what good news you have for us. And chiefly today, we're just caught up in the good news that you have the Holy Spirit to baptize us in. How could we ever even think that life could even work or begin to work apart from, from you? apart from your, your power and your presence dwelling within us. Oh, Lord Jesus Christ, would you now saturate your people in the presence and the living reality of God? Would you baptize them? Lord, I pray for people who, who've lost their first love, who, who've forgotten what it was like to be nudged by your Holy Spirit and to be so responsive out of joy to all that you would ask. Lord, I pray for those who, who, who are giving up in hurt and distress 
and are on the verge of entering into so much more, I pray that they would receive deeply from your Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord. Just continue to pray now as Steve ministers from the piano. dormant for a while and God is even now reviving it by the sending and empowering of his Holy Spirit. of forgiveness toward a specific person in your life and the Holy Spirit's been kind of blocked by that and, and is waiting for you to just ask for his help to forgive freely and fully. of you, you're gaining new strength now. You're learning, even you're feeling even right now what it is to, to wait on the Lord and receive, like mount up with wings like eagles to run and not grow weary. God's even now giving you strength for something you're facing. Thank you, Lord. Come by your spirit. come to the communion table today just come with a new openness if you need prayer there's people who stand on either side of the room they'd be so glad to pray with you but now let's just close and Lord I ask that you would seal and protect this work that you are beginning here and doing in a great way we honor you Lord Jesus Christ you who baptize us in your Holy Spirit 